Well, Chuck Swindoll tells a story about a group of kids who were building a clubhouse. And he said the children worked long and hard on their little cardboard shack. It was to be a special spot, a clubhouse where they could meet together, play, and have fun. Since a clubhouse has to have rules, they came up with three. Nobody acting big, nobody acting small, everybody act medium. Got the rules memorized? Nobody act big, nobody act small, everybody act medium. Good advice from a clubhouse full of kids who, by the way, are pretty good at practicing what they preach. Well, last week in the first part of 1 Peter chapter 5, we saw where God gave us a similar set of instructions. He was talking to the leaders in the church, and he said, you're not to act too big. You're to follow the example of Jesus Christ where we serve one another. As we turn in our Bible today to the next part of the passage in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7 this morning, we're going to see that God continues to give us instructions along this set of lines. He says, You younger men, likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. As we're reading those commands, it's pretty easy to see how the first couple come together. But you may look at the last one there in verse 7 where he says to cast all our anxiety upon him and wonder how does that fit in with what we're talking about. Well, first I want to remind you of the context. Uh, Peter is writing to those in the first century who are are under the persecution of the Roman emperor Nero and all the things that are happening. And as we see this uh, call to submit to those who are over you, they may have worried that they were going to be taken advantage of if they humbled themselves, if they submitted to others. Now, this call to submit is nothing new. We've seen all throughout First Peter where he's been calling on us to submit to various authorities. Back in chapter 2, we saw in verse 13 that we were to submit to those in the government over us. Then in 2.18, to those in the workplace. And in 3.1, he gave instructions for submission in the home. And now here in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, he says, To those who are the sheep and the church, submit to the shepherds that God has placed in authority over you. Now, one of the safeguards for people when it comes to this meaning of the word submission is to remember what the Greek word submission is. We saw earlier in the book that it's the word hupotasso. Hupotasso is a combined word. Hupo means to place under or subordinate, and tasso means to appoint, order, or arrange. And you'll recall that this was a, a military word. It described the actual chain of command in a military where those who were in authority over you uh, had this line of, of command. But as we talked about then, and I want to remind you today, the person at the very top of the chain of command, the commander-in-chief is Jesus Christ. Uh, whether it's in the home, he's the head of the home. In the church, he's the head of the church. Those of us who are, who are in workplace areas of responsibility, God is the ultimate authority. And so what that means here is when we are called to submit to leaders in a church, it's not saying that it's a blank check. That if you have an unrighteous person who is asking you to do things that go against God's word, uh, you're not to do that. God is the ultimate authority. And so we are all to submit to what he tells us in his written word. And as we saw the example of Christ, who is the servant leader. 
Now, this word used for elders describes those, as we talked about last time, who are spiritually mature. It was used originally to describe those who were chronologically older in age, and it became applied as a title in the church to those who were spiritually mature, who had grown in their walk with God. And so, again, this is another safeguard because those who are actually in authority should be mature uh, believers who are going to uh, not take advantage of others, but instead are going to serve. Now, he addresses this call to submit to those who are the younger men. And this can refer to those who are younger in years, again, chronologically, or it may be in their walk with the Lord. There are people who come to faith at a later age chronologically, but they're, they're called new believers. And so what you have is Peter describing many congregations where you have those who are older in years as well as older in their faith and those who are uh, younger in years and younger in their walk with God. And as these two groups come together, sometimes there's a clash of cultures. You can have those who say, well, generationally, uh, we don't do things the same. You can have those who prefer different styles of, of worship or the way that we go about doing things. And so um, this is part of what was happening in the church where there was these different tastes and styles and cultures coming together, and it became a challenge at times. So again, Peter is calling on the believers to be unified in their faith. Here at Wayside, we see this sometimes. I mean, one of the the beautiful things about our church is we're multi-generational. We have uh, seniors alongside singles. We have grandchildren alongside grandparents. And so as we bring these different groups together, at times there are differing tastes and styles. But rather than looking at the challenges that come with that, I look at the the beauty that comes with it, this diversity, uh, this richness that comes together. And we're able to put into practice passages like Titus 2, 3 through 5, where it says those who are older women should be uh, teaching and mentoring those who are younger. We see it in Proverbs 27:17, where it says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's what we see happening in 2 Timothy 2.2, where we're told, uh, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And as we talked about last week, we have this opportunity as we gather together as believers to have this life-on-life ministry where we're sharpening and mentoring and pouring into one another. We see it uh, as it happens when the junior or senior high students serve in our children's ministry. Uh, John mentioned Vacation Bible School in two weeks, and there's 125 of our middle and high school students who are going to come alongside Uh, almost 200 adults to serve several hundred additional children who will be here for that week learning about God's great love for them. Uh, We see it where those who are young adults pour into the youth. We see it where those who are uh, young adults glean from those who are a step ahead in their 30s or 40s and those in their 30s and 40s from those in their 50s. You don't have to be a senior saint to have something to contribute to the life of another person. As you uh, do this iron sharpening iron, life-on-life ministry, your experiences can cascade down to the next generations. And as verse 5 tells us here, it says, in all of you, that means both young and old. He's saying, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now, this picture of clothing ourselves with humility is, is, is a very... Uh, poignant because it it was used of a word that actually described the apron that a slave would put on before he or she served. 
You can think about going into places where you'll put on a smock or an apron because you know there's going to you know, be the, the chance of getting dirty or you know, damaging your clothing or things. And this was the picture here. When he says clothe yourselves, it was literally putting on uh, the towel to serve. And we talked last time about how Peter and the other disciples were there in the upper room. You'll recall at the Last Supper, Jesus and the disciples gathered in the upper room. And typically, when you would sit down to a meal, they literally laid down to a meal. You would have the table on the ground, and they were, they were stacked like sardines, you know, chest to feet to head and all the way around. And so as you came into that setting, there was normally a slave who met you at the door, and it was the lowest of the lowest servant who would be the one who would meet you with a, a towel and a basin of water and wash your feet. And that day they walked around on dirt roads that had open sewers and animal droppings and the dust and dirt. As you walked around with open-toed sandals, your feet would get filthy. And as you came in and reclined around the table, you can imagine uh, how appetizing that would be to have these feet right by your head as you're sitting there eating. And so this is why you would wash one another's feet. But there was no servant available. And none of the disciples were willing to take and humble themselves. They were arguing who was the greatest. And as Christ was there with them reclining at the table, we're told he got up. He stripped himself down. He girded himself with a towel. And then he went around with a basin and began to wash each of their feet. Peter, who is writing this, as you read there in John chapter 13, when Christ came to Peter, uh, he was so embarrassed, he said, Lord, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, I'm going to wash your feet. And he did, just as he did with all the others. And when he finished, he got back up, dressed, and sat down at the table with the others And he said in John 13, 13 and following, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. You know, when people look at us, what is the example they see? What is the example that we give to others? Is it one of Christ where we humble ourselves and serve? Or are we more like those who have a cafeteria Christianity? And by that I mean self-serve only. What is the example that we have when others look at us? There was a woman by the name of Ruth Calkin, and she wrote about the way we sometimes serve. She says, you know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how I eagerly speak for you at a women's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But I wonder, how would I react if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the callous feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody cared? That's a question we all need to ask ourselves, isn't it? Do we serve when the spotlight is on? But we struggle when we're asked to serve in a place of obscurity where maybe it's menial or messy. Nobody's going to see what it is we're doing. Do we do as Christ did? Do we humble ourselves and do these menial and messy things that nobody else wants to do? You know, sometimes what gets in the way is that we hit a point where we feel like we've gotten too big or too important to do the little things. 
Friends, if you ever feel you're too big to do the little things, then I want to tell you you're too little to do the big things. If you're too big to do the little things, you're too little to do the big things. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary and leader of China Inland Mission, was once asked, why were you chosen to lead that ministry? And Taylor replied, God chose me because I was weak enough. God does not do his great works by large committees. He trains someone to be quiet enough, little enough, and then he uses him or her. As the great reformer Martin Luther said, God made the world out of nothing, and as long as you are nothing, God can make something out of you. We read in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, where it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, I want you to remember that God left his throne in heaven to come to earth to not only humble himself and serve by washing the disciples' feet, but he went to the cross. He went to the cross, humbling himself to the point of dying uh, the most abhorrent criminal's death that could be died in that day. The creator became a part of the creation. The creator became a servant. The creator became a sacrifice for you and me. He took our place paying the penalty of death we owed for our sins to save us. Jesus Christ set aside his crown for the cross. And what he calls on us to do today is to set aside our pride, to pick up the towel, and to serve others. Verse 5 tells us, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, this Greek word for opposed is a military term. It was actually used to describe an army that was gathered together where the full forces came out in battle against the opponent. And Peter warns us here that the sin of pride is one that will cause God to come out in full battle against you and me with all the forces of heaven. Now, that's, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? And why would God have such a strong reaction to this sin of pride? Well, the reason for that is pride is at the core of all the destruction in the world and all that we see. We should remember that pride was the sin that caused the fall of our adversary, Satan. Next Sunday, we're going to come back as we close out this letter, and we're going to look at the final part where Peter talks about the devil, our adversary. The word Satan literally means adversary. We're going to see in verse 8 that that's one of his titles. We're going to see he's called the devil. He has many other titles. One is found in Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen. It says, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. What this is telling us is before the fall, Satan was the highest created angel. He was called the covering cherub. He had a place in the very throne room of God. He was there at at the altar. And as Satan saw God in all his glory, as he was there in that room, the sin of pride took over, and he said, "Uh, I want that. Isaiah fourteen twelve tells us, Satan said, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High. Pride was also the root of the sin that caused the fall of mankind. The serpent came to Adam and Eve. He tempted Eve by telling her in Genesis 3, 5, to eat of the forbidden tree. If you will disobey God, he said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The sin of pride 
is at the top of the list of the things that God hates. In Proverbs 6, 16, it tells us there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And the, the top of the list begins with haughty eyes. And this points to the sin of pride because it describes how we look down on others, how we see ourselves as better than other people. Now, in contrast to what God hates, Micah 6, 8 tells us this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the call that we find here in 1 Peter 5, 6, to humble ourselves, it says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, this call to humble ourselves is in the passive form of the Greek text. And what that literally means is it reads here, allow yourselves to be humbled. Pride is seen in this self-reliance and independence, whereas humility is a dependence upon God and submission to him. Pride says, I'm the king of my life. I'm the queen on the throne. I'm the captain of my destiny. I'm in control. But humility says, Jesus Christ is the king of kings. And I give him control of my heart and life. As you look at your life this morning, is Jesus Christ on the throne room? Is he on the throne of your life? Is he in your heart occupying that place? Or are you the one who's in control? Friends, if you're the one who is still in control of your life, I invite you today to turn to him, to humble yourself, to acknowledge your need, and to say, Jesus, come into my life Enter into my heart. Take your proper place on the throne of my life. I yield myself and my life to you today. I recognize my need for you as my Savior and accept him. Verse 5 tells us God is opposed to the proud. Friends, nothing could be worse than to have an infinitely powerful and holy God come against us. Remember, the armies of heaven are arrayed against those who are proud. In contrast to that, he says in verse 5, God gives grace to the humble. Grace is defined in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. We can't earn our way to God. We can't work our way to God. But when we humble ourselves, when we acknowledge our need for God's Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior, we will be saved. We are made a part of the family, invited in as sons and daughters. Now, once we come to faith, once we go through this world, there are going to be times of suffering. We see that here. We can look ahead, though, he says, to the hope we have, to that promise of eternal life when we enter uh, into heaven, into that permanent home that God has for us. This is what Peter's reminding those who were facing persecution in that day. He says, don't lose hope. There is a day coming where God will exalt you. God will give you your proper place in heaven one day, and he will exalt you if he has a place here on earth set aside for you to serve. In the scriptures, the mighty hand of God is used to speak of God's deliverance of his people. It's found in Exodus 13, 3, where Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Now, an important part of God's uh, intervening, his exaltation is tied to the time when he does it. I want you to notice the end of verse 6 there in First Peter 5. It says that he may exalt you at the proper time. What is the proper time? 
Well, back in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, we saw how God will place us through times of trial and refining in order to burn away the dross in our life to prepare us. Uh, you'll recall we looked at what the way an ancient goldsmith would refine gold and how he would keep it in the fire until he could see his face reflected in the metal as all the dross and the impurities were burned off and, and cleaned away. You could see uh, the person's face reflected. And this is what God does with us. He refines us. He burns away the dross. He prepares us until we look more like his son. The scriptures are full of examples of those who went through times of preparation and refining before God used them. Moses, we just saw a moment ago, he was under God's hand for 40 years. He was off in a place of obscurity, keeping the sheep. And then God sent him to deliver the Jews from Egypt. Joseph is another one that we see in Pharaoh's palace. Remember that he went through 13 years of preparation, some of those years in a place of prison, imprisonment, before he was promoted to the palace. King David was a shepherd in the field tending sheep, and he was even sent there back into a place of obscurity after he was anointed to be the king. When he finally went into the, the palace there in Jerusalem, it was to serve under Saul, the king, who at times tried to kill David. It was a very difficult time for David as he was being prepared to take the throne himself. Queen Esther was another one that we find in a palace setting. You remember she was brought into the palace and and the Jews were facing annihilation and Esther was called in to step into the the crucible of, of that time and she was told for such a time as this, have you been brought into the palace? She faced the possibility of death herself if God did not grant her favor with the king, which he did. And it was the enemies of the Jews who were wiped out instead of the Jewish people. The Apostle Paul is another one who had a time of quiet preparation. We know about his experience on the road to Damascus where he encountered the resurrected Lord, but what many people forget uh, is that he was sent away for several years to an obscure place out of the spotlight, being quietly prepared before he came back into his place of public ministry. There are times where you may be tempted to seek the spotlight. You may feel you have to exalt yourself because God is taking too long to do it for you. But I want you to remember that God knows where you are and his promotions are sudden and surprising. In the proper time, he will exalt you. So serve faithfully where God has you. Now, if you're tempted to force the timing or go after things yourself, I want you to picture grabbing after something. And when you grab something, your hands are, are closed or full. And there's no way for God to put additional things in your hand without prying your hands open. And that can be a painful experience. As you think about your hand and grabbing for stuff yourself, I love the story of a, a little girl who went with her mom to do the shopping uh, during This was during the days of the Wild West where you had to come into town and buy your supplies at the general store, and this little girl rode in on the wagon with her mom. Uh, they went to the general store, and if you've seen a show like Little House on the Prairie, you know kind of the setting of the general store. They would have all the, the stock there, and there would be these kind of jars of candy right by the counter, kind of like today in our modern supermarkets, right, with all the, the gum and candy bars and things right by the checkout. And this little girl was sitting there uh, staring at these jars of candy as her mom's order was being processed and paid for. 
And the shopkeeper sees the little girl there kind of licking her lips, looking at the candy. And he said, uh, he said, honey, help yourself. Go ahead and grab a handful of candy free of charge. And the little girl didn't move. In fact, she kind of stepped behind her mother's leg. And uh, the shopkeeper looks down and says, honey, what's wrong? Don't you like candy? The little girl pokes her head out and she smiles and shakes her head. I like candy. And he said, well, help yourself. And again, she didn't move. So the, the shopkeeper said, here, come, come closer. He lifts the jar lid off. He reaches in, grabs a big overflowing handful of candy, and he drops it in the bag for her. And as they walked out, they got to the wagon. They were having their stuff loaded. And when everybody was gone and it was just mom and daughter, she said, honey, what's wrong with you? You've never been shy before. She said, why, why didn't you get the candy when he offered it? And the little girl looks up and says, uh, Mom, his hand is bigger than mine. <laughs> you know, when we try to grasp glory for ourselves, we will end up with so much less than God wants to give us. I want to remind you that the Bible tells us that God holds the oceans of the world in the palms of his hand. So open your hands up. Say, God, my life belongs to you. Do like Isaiah did and say, here am I, Lord, send me. Now, as we try to do that, there can be a fear involved. Our passage tells us in verse 7 to cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. And, and some of us are afraid to say, as Isaiah did, here am I, Lord, send me. We're thinking, well, he's going to send me off to some you know, far-flung mission field or he's going to call on me to do something that I hate. That's not how God operates. He tells us in the Bible that he will give us the desires of our heart. He will either change our desires to match his or he will work in our lives to prepare us for the place he has prepared for us. Now, in the case of these first century Christians, remember some of them were losing their jobs, their homes, even their lives. Many were being martyred for their faith. Peter, who wrote this letter, would be crucified upside down in Rome because he said he wasn't worthy to die in the same way that his Savior was crucified. And, and they faced worries that were real, just as we do in our day. And what God told them, and he repeats to us today, is cast all your cares, all your worries upon me, because I care for you. Now, I love to fish. Some of you may do that as well. So when I hear a word like casting, well, I picture kind of, you know, throwing the rod out there and the line out as you, you know, reel it in. And this may be your idea of what casting looks like, you know, kind of jigging the line, hoping you can get something and, and, you know, bringing it back in. But that's not what this word casting means. It has a literal meaning of to put something on deposit with another it, it was used of a picture of laying a blanket on a donkey and then putting your load on the donkey and strapping it down so the donkey could carry it. And so as we're told to cast our cares upon God, the picture is where we take our worries and we load them on the Lord. We deposit it with him and then we say, God, it's yours to carry. Again, as I think about what this looks like, there was a a man walking down a, a backcountry road one day. He's carrying an overloaded backpack. He's kind of bent over under the load, and he's struggling along. He's fatigued. He's been on this uh, road for quite some time, and along comes a farmer in a, in a wagon. And he sees this traveler with this heavy load, and he, he comes alongside him, and he says, where are you going? The guy says, oh, I'm going several miles up the road here. The farmer said, I am too. Why don't you jump in the back of the wagon here and rest? 
uh, just lay your backpack, you know, jump in. And so the guy climbs in the back of the wagon, and the farmer gets the horses going again. They're traveling down the road. He doesn't hear the man at all, so he thinks, well, maybe the guy was so tired he's fallen asleep. So he turns around and he looks to see how this traveler's doing. And he was surprised because this man is sitting in the back of the wagon, still with the load strapped on his back, bent over under the load. And the farmer says, friend, what are you doing? He says, uh, take your pack off, lay it down and rest. And the man says, matter of fact, to the farmer, well, I'm helping the horses carry the load. How many of us are doing that with God? How many of us say, well, God, here, I've, I've given this to you. I'm going to lay the load on you. But then we say, well, but, but I've got to help God carry it. Do you think you're really helping God by holding on to it and bearing whatever burden it is that you've talked about to him in prayer? Are you somebody who stays awake at night worrying about the things you're facing? Friends, may I remind you, God's going to be up all night anyway. Why don't you just let him have it and you go to sleep? Have you ever thought about the fact that today is the tomorrow that you worried about yesterday? Today is the tomorrow that you worried about yesterday. Did it do any good? Did it do any good to worry about those things? Did it change anything? Corey Ten Boom once said, Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows. What it does is empties today of its strength and its joy. Peter tells us here, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. If you want to know how much God cares for you, just look around. Look around in the world. Have you ever watched birds flitting around? The Bible says, look at the birds of the air. God feeds them. They don't worry about what they're going to eat. God takes care of them. He says, look at the grass of the field and how God clothes it in splendor. You know, a few weeks back, many of our landscape and yards around here looked like they were dead and gone. And now with all the rain we've had, they're just exploding again in life. Most of the things have come back and are just exploding. And God says, look at the grass of the field and how I clothe it in all its glory. Not even Solomon, the king, was arrayed in such beauty as this. Do you want to know how much God cares for you? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And remember how he left his throne in heaven to come to earth, to humble himself to the point of death, to take your place and mine, to die, to save us. Romans 8.32 tells us, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Peter says, are you worried today? Are you worried about your finances, about your health, about your future, about some relationship? He says, cast your cares on God. Deposit it with him. Let him carry the load. If God can take care of the problem of sin that separated us from him, the biggest problem any of us will ever face in this life is the penalty of death we owed for our sins. And Jesus took care of that problem. He gave his life. He shed his blood, paying the penalty of death we owe. And if we will give our life to him, humbling ourselves, acknowledging our need for him to be our savior, it says that we will be saved. 
Friends, how many of us here today have trusted God for eternity? We say, when I die, I know where I'm going. I'm going home to heaven. And yet we turn around and we say, God, I can trust you for eternity, but I can't trust you for tomorrow. I can't trust you to take care of this problem I'm facing in my life. We have a choice to make, friends. Will we trust God? Will we cast our cares on him? Or will we continue to carry our worries? As you consider that question, I want you to look at this picture on the screen because it shows what our choice can mean for us. This is a picture of a statue at Rockefeller Rockefeller Center in New York City. It's a picture of the mythical god Atlas, who you recall is supposed to be the one holding up the world. And as you look at that picture, you see he's this rippling, muscle-bound man. He's, He's this strong, bulging muscles holding up the weight of the world. But I want you to notice his foot has slipped off the pedestal. He's struggling under the load. He's barely able to hold it up. But if you look across the street, if you're standing there at the statue of Atlas and you look across the street in New York, you'll see St. Patrick's Cathedral. And if you were to walk into the doors of St. Patrick's Cathedral and go in there, you will find a, a statue depicting Jesus as a young boy. And as you look at and study the picture of Jesus, you'll notice that one of his hands is held out palm up. And there in his hand, with no effort at all, he's holding the world. And with his other hand, he's making the the sign of peace. This is what God offers to us today. He says some of us are buckling under the weight of the world. We're trying to bear the burdens of this life. And he says instead of being the ones who are carrying the load, give it to Christ. He can hold uh, the world and all its problems, which includes you and all that you and your family may be facing with no effort at all in his hands. So as we end today, we can go to God and say, I want you to be the Lord of my life. Here's my world. Here's my worries. I ask for your peace. It passes all understanding. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 tells us, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And it says the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So as we go to prayer now, I want you to think about what you walked in here with this morning, what the worries are, the things that you've carried in here today. I want you just to give those to God, to roll them off your shoulders and onto him and say, God, I'm, I'm depositing this with you. This is yours to carry. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, as you're listening to us, rolling these burdens off of our shoulders and onto yours, they're things you were already aware of. They were things you were already waiting to carry for us. We thank you, God, that you offer us your peace when we turn to you, when we give you what we're carrying. We thank you, God, as well, that you have not left us alone. We, we recognize there are times that while we know you're on the throne in heaven, while we know you're, you're there and real, we, we need something uh, tangible to come alongside us like other people to help us, to hold up our arms, to help carry the load. 
And as you tell us in Galatians 6.2, to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, I thank you that you have placed people all around us here at church, in our homes, in our workplaces, other believers who are there, many who are waiting just to help us if we will turn and say, I need help to reach out. Lord God, would you prepare us as those who may hear from a a friend or a family member today or this week, I need help. I don't know where to turn or what to do. Would we be those who are willing to step in and bear one another's burdens? We thank you, Lord, that you have taken the biggest burden any of us would ever have the problem of sin, that penalty of death that we owed, and you, you conquered sin, death, and Satan. You defeated our adversary at the cross. You paid that penalty of death, washing away our sins with your blood. And you offer today, God, that gift of eternal life, that peace that comes when we accept you as the Prince of Peace and allow you to occupy the throne of our life. So I pray, God, if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet come to your Son, that today would be the day where they come to you They humble themselves, accepting your death, their need for you to be the Savior and Lord of their life. God, for the rest of us who have received your Son, would we be those who entrust to him the troubles we have? And as we go out of this door, as we walk out of this church or at home, as we're worshiping online and we go about our day-to-day lives, would we leave the burdens we carried with you, knowing you can be trusted to take them? and deal with them. Thank you again for your love for us. Thank you for giving us your son who gave us the gift of life. As those who know him, may we be your hands and feet in the world around us, helping others who have burdens that need to be borne. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you again for being here. If you have need for prayer, please come to the front. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.